Our text this morning is from the book of Hebrews chapter 12. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3 will be uh, the beginning of our text, Hebrews 12 and 3. I believe that's on page 1205 in your pew Bibles. If you did not bring yours, please grab one of those and open it up to page 1205. The next sections of Hebrews from verse 3 onward all the way to the end of the book are these wonderful concluding applications. It becomes the, the capstone of this book really of staggering doctrine. The main theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ as we've often mentioned his superiority over the angels, his superiority over Abraham and over Moses his superiority over earthly rest, over the Old, Old Testament covenant system, and primarily over the earthly high priesthood. But as always, God doesn't give us doctrine for the sake of our head knowledge. It's given for our heart knowledge. And of course, as we've discussed also, Scripture has two specific words that deal with that distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge, both in the, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, we see those two specific words. The difference being one is a, is a mental understanding and one is an experiential knowledge. And it is that transition from that head knowledge to that heart knowledge to that experiential knowledge by which salvation comes. And it's often been rightly said that many men and women will miss heaven by 18 inches, possessing the head knowledge, but never having the experiential heart knowledge. Well, as we dive into God's concluding section of application, we're going to get some great opportunity to transition some of the head knowledge that we've received and will continue to receive into that wonderful divine application. And that's where the title for our message this morning comes from. I've titled our message, Divinely Demanded Discipline. Divinely Demanded Discipline. Hebrews 3 and verse, or Hebrews 12 rather, and verses 3 to 11 will be our text, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 12 because it all flows through the context. So if you'd follow along as I read beginning in Hebrews 12 and 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Divinely demanded discipline. Hebrews 12 began as this massive summary, and we talked about this last week, about the unique conjunction at the beginning of verse 1 that ties everything from Hebrews 1, 1 through 12 together. We addressed how this verse takes all the phenomenal doctrine of the first 10 chapters and adds the three powerful applications of the middle of chapter 10 to the beginning of chapter 11. And then those four ascending elements of the hall of faith in chapter 11. And verses 1 and 2 become this summary and this transition to all of these. These two great verses drew us to consider what we're to do with all the great material from chapters 1 to 11. We saw how we were to run our race. That is, how we are to recognize the great cloud of witnesses that is before us. Both the plethora of biblical Old Testament witnesses and also the witnesses all around us in the New Testament, even those in our day who have encouraged us individually in our walk. Those of the ancient times and also those of modern day saints have encouraged each of us. And we are to remember that and we are to be motivated by that. To know their faithfulness in the way in which they live and how they ran their races so that we too may run ours. For God has put before each and every one of us a unique race which he desires us to run. We're to emulate their lives of faith and to do this just like they did. That is, to lay aside the encumbrances that so easily and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Those two things, the encumbrances, as we talked about, were not the elements of sin, but they were the elements that will pull us back, mental and physical allures that pull us away from Christ, pull us away from God and understanding his word. And even more so, the sin we were to lay aside also, that which does ensnare us, the sin which destroys our fellowship with God, the sin which destroys our fellowship with one another, and that sin which stops our growth of faith. These must be put off so that we can run the race. And then verse 2 showed us the purpose of that race. As we realize our resolve, the, the purpose and intent of our lives as believers. And that purpose is Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And here we transitioned from the hall of faith of the Old Testament believers to the pinnacle of faith in Jesus Christ. He is our resolve. He is our reason for living. He is our response to all things in life. 
All our lives are about living for Jesus. He isn't added to our lives, but he is our life. He is the essence. He is the purpose. He is all that we are and all that we desire to be. Our lives are all about living for him. And that's what it means when it says that he is the author of our faith. He is the originator of our faith, the one who began it and from time past with God the Father and God the Spirit knew all that would transpire all the way through to the cross and his fulfillment and therein the originator of our faith. He is the leader of our faith in that he walked in the path which we are to walk and we are to emulate that life. He is preeminent in our faith in that everything that we do in our lives of faith and in our lives in general must be patterned after Christ. And he is our ultimate hope in our faith. As Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so also will we be raised from the dead. And this is why he is the author of our faith. As we saw the definition of faith clear back in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Because without faith, we are nothing. We are those of the world thinking that when we die, it is simply over. And such hopelessness that the only joy that is available to us is that temporal happiness which we can achieve in this life. Paul referenced this in 1 Corinthians 15.32 when he said, if this is the case, if, if even the dead are na- not raised in Christ then we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But we know that the dead are raised, and we know that there is great hope, but our world is without that understanding. Many think again that when death comes, life ends, and that's it. Or for some, they may be reincarnated to some type of an animal and get another chance to live a better life and move up in the chain of hierarchy of animals, whoever has established that, until finally someday they may arrive at a better eternity, such as those believers in, in Buddhism. For others, some obscure delusions of those who live rampant immorality for their achievements in conquering those contrary to Islam, or those losing their identity to become part of some ideal ethereal essence, such as those in Hinduism. But by faith, we know there is an eternal existence. God has placed within each of us that understanding that death is not the end. And it is through faith in Christ we see that end come to reality. That because he was raised, we too will be raised if we have become those who believe in him. This is the hope of our faith. Because without him, there is no faith. There is no story. There is no future. There is no hope. But not only is he that author, but he is the perfecter. And he is going to bring all of this to fruition. He's going to complete it all, and that is exactly what the book of Revelation tells us. Verse 2 shows us all that Jesus did to give us confirmation. He is going to complete it all. He brought all of this to fruition. And as we discussed, he did it all for joy. Not, Not earthly joy, but the eternal joy. The eternal joy of pointing us to him. Of saying, no, beloved, there is something so much better that awaits you. 
if you will but grasp and hold and look to that. So this becomes the pattern of how the believer must live his or her life. Like Jesus, there is indeed great joy for us. Joy in this life as we've been studying about on Wednesday night in our discussion of Philippians. And great joy in our future eternity with Jesus in heaven. But we remember that biblical joy, again, is not the same as worldly happiness. Joy is something every believer must have. It's, it's something a believer can have at all times. But the reality of this life is that everything is not saturated with happiness. Therein, those two terms, joy and happiness, are not parallel. This life can be very difficult. And the unequivocal truth of the Bible speaks to the realities of this life. We don't have to pretend that there are things that it doesn't address. We don't have to put our minds on the shelf to understand our faith in Christ. No, anything but. We are to recognize that God's word speaks to all of this. And it speaks to the difficult realities that are part of our world. And that's what we enter into as we consider our text today and this divinely demanded discipline. With that, let's, let's go to our first point, which I've titled Discipline's Strength in verse 3. Discipline's Strength. Verse 3 begins by reminding us of life's difficulties. And particularly how those difficulties relate to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3 with me. For consider him who had endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If we are to keep our eyes fixed on him, that is, fixed on Jesus, we must understand what he went through. As verse 3 begins, it says, Consider him. Notice the first word for there is a conjunction tying us back to our previous verses. An important point of our observation from our equipping hour classes on Bible interpretation. And then we have a command. The word consider. For consider. So this isn't an optional consideration, but that which is mandatory for believers. In fact, this word is an emphatic form of the word to consider or to think about. The root word comes from our English word logic. So as we think about, we're to think about logically, we're to think about rationally, we're to engage all of our mind in this endeavor of considering. This isn't emotional thinking. This isn't irrational thinking. It's clear, thought out, factual assessment of a condition. And that condition is the reality of the life that we live. And here, this emphatic form means to consider carefully, to, to think in this logical way, in a very calculated, in a very rational manner. And we are to think about him. And of course, that him is Jesus, that pronoun referencing back to verse 2 and to our reference to Christ. And notice that we're to think carefully and logically about Jesus, namely, to think about the hostility that he endured by sinners. This was the, the mocking of the Pharisees through his life. Think of all that our Lord went through in his life. Think of all of that hostility which he endured. He was called an illegitimate child of 
fornication in John 8, 41. Certainly nothing that anyone would want to be labeled with. His own family denied him in John 7, 5. The continual attacks against him by the Pharisees seeking to kill him. His own disciples not getting who he was. One of those closest to him, living with him for three years, betraying him. And as for the ultimate expression of hostility, how about all that happened during the last week of his life? That which we call the Passion Week. The night arrest. Hundreds of soldiers coming with clubs and spears after him. The night trials where he is illegally tried, where he is blindfolded and beaten, where he is spit upon in his face by hundreds of men. What hostility. And it went on. The mocking, the screaming of the crowd to crucify him during the day trials, being taken to King Herod to have a royal robe put on him so that he might be mocked and led about. And then taken back to Pilate to two different times be scourged. The crown of thorns driven upon his head, thorns so long that they impaled his skull and couldn't be done by hand, but were beaten on with a reed. The robe after the scourging put upon his back to be allowed to stay, only to be ripped off, to remove again all of those scabs. The ultimate of all of this, the crucifixion. And even the mocking that went along with that. The two thieves on each side. The guards casting lots for his garments. The Pharisees standing there hurling abuses at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. One cannot conceive of greater hostility. And who were these sinners? As we've mentioned, the Pharisees, his family, his closest friends, his countrymen, the Jews, the Romans who crucified him. But it was not just them. It was me. And it was you. You, beloved, we are the sinners who have acted in hostility. It is our continual sin. It is that for which Christ paid the ultimate price as he covered our sins, those yet still to be committed. How horrific is the sinfulness of man? How depraved are, is all of mankind? Romans 3 tells us this. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who is good. Not one. None who are righteous. All have gone astray. How is it then that we understand these truths we understand it only through the faith and the suffering of Christ. Only through the hostility which he endured. Because he endured that hostility for us. He spent all of the time on this earth enduring the abuses of mankind over and over. Those three hours of darkness where God the Father poured out all of our sins and all of his wrath upon him. And all of this for us. All of this so that we could recognize his love. All of this so that we could recognize who we are. And understand that apart from him, we have no hope. That it is only through Christ that we have life. For we indeed are every bit as much a part of the sinners who were hostile as were those right before him. 
But all of this Jesus does for a point. And that point is for encouragement, it's strength. And it says so right after this in the middle of verse 3, where it says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that is the, the purpose statement and the main point. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Christ did all this to inspire us. He did all of this to strengthen us, to energize us, and to carry us forward. Paul expressed the same strength against growing weary in Galatians 6.9. He writes in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Perseverance brings reward, beloved. And we recognize that it is that perseverance in God that we must not lose heart in what Christ is doing. Jesus has endured this hostility so that we will carry forward, so that we will not grow weary. The focus of this initial point of growing weary is the very inception of when one is ready to quit. You've walked through the battle, it's getting too severe, and at that moment you say, I've had enough. It is at that point that we are to think about Christ. It is that point that we are to recognize what Jesus did to encourage and to move us forward. Not only are we not to grow weary, but we're not to lose heart. The verse literally says that your souls not be given up in the original Greek. The implication is that there can be a tendency for spiritual surrender. But we are to be strengthened in Christ. There's a time where we become ready to quit on our faith, quit on our Lord. But it is at the moment of this where we begin to grow weary. It is the moment of this where we find that our hearts are failing, that we must step up and remember Christ. He is the answer in all of these areas. So our verse is all about being strengthened. This is the disciplined strength. This has been the focus of the whole chapter. And the focus of strength is conveyed through one repeated word in these first three verses of chapter 12. And that word is endure. You see it right there in verse 1 at the end? We are to run with endurance. The same words used in verse 2 as Jesus endured the cross. And now in verse 3, Jesus again endures hostility, and all of this is to strengthen us. It's to encourage us. Life can be difficult, and this is exactly why these verses are here, so that we'll be strengthened. And we know that difficulty in our own lives, and we know it from the lives of others. I often reflect upon the writer of the wonderful hymn, It Is Well. Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford lived in the late 1800s. In 1871, his two-year-old son was killed in the Chicago fire. A horrific event. And yet just two years later in 1873, as he was preparing with his wife and four daughters to travel across to Europe... Some business plans in dealing with the effects of the Chicago fire kept him in the mainland and his daughters, four daughters and wife went ahead. And a boat accident where two boats collided sunk the ship and he received the now infamous 
message from his wife, I alone was saved. What an incredible understanding. And yet amidst that, as he goes to be reunited with his wife on a boat trip some weeks later, he writes, it is well with my soul. Undaunted by this, strengthened, ready to quit, no doubt, from all of these afflictions. Jesus has told his disciples and us that in this world we will have trouble. But even in this we're to be strengthened. John 16.33 says specifically, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. But in the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. There is nothing, beloved, that will attack us. There is nothing that will come against us that Jesus hasn't seen, that he hasn't walked through with us, that he isn't guiding and directing us. This is discipline's strength. And we see why this is such an important beginning as we move to our second point, discipline's struggle, beginning in verse 4. Discipline's struggle. Our concept of struggling in discipline struggle is immediately evident in verse 4, where it says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Although struggle and difficulty are part of the Christian life of every age, these Jewish believers had not suffered to the point of shedding blood or of being martyred for their faith. The focus of shedding blood immediately connects us back to verses 2 and 3 and the references to Jesus enduring great hostility and to his time on the cross from verse 2. The statement further confirms to us that the audience of the book of Hebrews is the Jewish church in Rome. Because the only two places that this could be were either the church, Jewish church in Jerusalem or that one in Rome. And the Jewish church in Jerusalem had suffered much bloodshed and much martyrdom through James the Apostle and through Stephen and through many others who died at the hands of Paul as Acts tells us. So clearly we understand Rome is the proper audience. But also the context of their struggle is that of striving against sin. So this is discipline's struggle, the struggle of striving against sin. And yet they have not engaged in this more severe striving against sin. The Greek word for striving is where we get our English word agony. But it's a compound form of that word, and it means to struggle or to agonize against evil. It means to do everything possible to fight against this with all of the power that one can muster. And as we consider this discipline of fighting and struggling against evil and doing everything possible, we must ask ourselves, beloved, is this us? Are we those who are fighting and struggling against sin in this way? Or do we get to the point of growing weary and losing heart and we just give in? I mean, I'm not as bad as the next guy. I haven't murdered anyone. This must not be the response. We must not be at a place where we will not continue to strive. 
recognizing that every day God places before us an understanding of our sin and we must battle it. That must be the response because there is a very real battle that needs to be waged. And if you're not fighting with sin, if you are not struggling, if you are not recognizing each and every day the way that you fall short, then you need to stop. You need to assess who and where you are because that battle exists in all of our lives. And this is a struggle which the audience has only been gauged in in a non-committal level. This isn't saying that they haven't struggled against sin. I'm certain that they have. But it's saying their has struggle has been minor in compared to others. It's clear that verse 4 has taken a note of chastisement. There's a negative tone that the, the verse indicates discipline in. And verse 5 confirms that chastisement where it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. They'd forgotten their exhortation given to them as sons. Clearly the one who called them sons was God. Of course, they all had earthly father, fathers who called them sons, but the only one who was father to all of them was God. We'll see this idea pick back up shortly, but notice closely the verb at the beginning of verse 5, forgotten. It's a past tense verb. If it were a, a present or an ongoing action, it would be forget or forgetting. But it's past tense. Yet, you, yet not just you forgot, but you have forgotten. It's another of our grammar observations that is so important. This verb is a perfect verb, meaning that it is a past tense verb, but it has an ongoing effect in action. You have forgotten, that is, you forgot in the past, and you continue to forget. Hence, the phrase, you have forgotten. Now, you might be saying, uh, wow, that, that's wonderful, Pastor. <laughs> Thank you for the grammar lesson. Or maybe you didn't think that. Perhaps you might think this was unnecessary academic information. This is a critical lesson for us. Why? Because this is true for every person. Once we forget, our tendency is to continue to forget. We lose sight of some important teaching, and soon when it's brought back to mind again, we continually negate it as if we never had heard it. Our tendency is to continue to forget. This is evidenced in every generation. How, how, do, we, how do we know this situation? Where do we see this play out in our culture? Well, pretty much everywhere, but let's take, for example, the idea of public swearing. Now, we know that the scripture teaches us from Ephesians 4.29. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. No abusive speech from Colossians 3.8. No filthiness in your talk from Ephesians 5.4. We're told as well that we are to honor women. How is that all played together? Well, think back, for those of you that have seen it or know of it, to the conclusion of the film, Gone with the Wind. Filmed in 1938. It took them months to get the censors to approve that closing terminology. 
And yet, how has that gone on from there? How is our speech in our world today? When I grew up, you would never see anyone swearing in front of a woman. It was absolutely impossible. Now we look on TV and we see women speaking like truck drivers. It has gone downhill so quickly. It is a lesson that we keep on forgetting. So it is. The same test can be applied to every issue of morality. The idea of appropriate dress. I'm so thankful for the way that you dress, particularly you ladies, that you understand appropriate dress. I have been in churches where the women needed chastised for the way that they dress because they were causing their brothers to be drawn into sin, exposing that which is only to be for their husbands. And it is not just that. We need to not even begin to address the plethora of aberrant forms of intimacy that are going on in our world. And yet, the scripture has spoken to all of these. All lessons learned and forgotten and continued to have been forgotten. So the danger of having forgotten, beloved, is no small detail. Part of discipline's struggle is forgetting what the value of discipline is. Can, can I just add something else here? How is it that we keep from forgetting? That is, how is it that we remember? We go back to the lesson book. We remind ourselves about where we have learned these things of how life is to go forward. Beloved, if you're not in the lesson book, your likelihood of forgetting has increased exponentially. The rest of verses 5 and 6 carry forward the Lord's exhortation, which they have forgotten. Look at verse 5, the middle of verse 5 again. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. These indented sections in your Bible, in the middle of verse 5, represent an Old Testament quote from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 11 to 12. The first part of this quote cautions against not recognizing the gravity of the Lord's discipline. Here the concept of discipline, which is in our title, divinely demanded discipline, is revealed directly. This is the reason that the element of chastisement arose in verse 4. These have not recognized the importance of discipline. And as the verse at the beginning of verse 5 revealed, they lose sight of the Lord's discipline. They have forgotten it. Next, it tells them that they're not to faint when reproved by him. Reprove is another word for the Lord's discipline. And it reveals an element of punishment, although normally it's in a verbal and corrective manner. Yet it could also be physical punishment. But we see this text brought forward again in, in verses like 2 Timothy 3.16, which tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training, and righteousness. Reproof. God's word brings reproof. So we see more of a, 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 of a verbal reprimand and correction. But the recipient is not to faint. The, the literal translation is to give up or to give away. It's the same verb used at the end of verse 3, to lose heart. 
at the beginning of this point of sin's battle, the author chastised them because of the weakness of their striving against sin. Here is the same topic. Don't faint or give up because of the Lord's discipline. It's not been that severe. That severe. Buck up, little soldier. You can get through this. Now, discipline is hard. I don't think I, I will ever forget discipline, either on the giving or receiving end. The first time that I despanked one of my boys was one of the most miserable times of my life. I don't know that it was any harder than when I was first spanked by my father. But nonetheless, we understand the difficulty that exists within this. Then in verse 6, we see why. Because the Lord loves those he disciplines. He doesn't discipline us out of anger, but out of love. And, and not out of human love, not of phileo friendship love, but out of agape love, out of unconditional love, out of understanding how far short we fall and in a desire to see us grow. This is why his discipline is not to be regarded lightly and why we must not faint when God reproves because it comes from his love and it comes for our good. God does not discipline randomly. He disciplines to bring correction, to bring change, and does so with a loving hand, even when it is severe. The proclamation of, of, that, of God's love continues in the second stanza of verse 6. He scourges every son he receives. Scourging is a word which describes whipping or flogging. We know this is not God physically flogging his children. He doesn't, God doesn't come down and physically flog or whip all of us who are believers. So this is a spiritual, a figurative application. But in a figurative sense, it means to chastise or to punish severely. But it's important for us to recognize that this severe punishment, it comes to every one of God's children. He scourges every son whom he receives. None are immune. Yet in the severity of this correction is the confirmation that we are indeed sons, that we are indeed daughters of God. That is, if we respond correctly, not regarding it lightly or ignoring it, we must realize the purpose and the effect. We must realize it comes from God's hand, and therein we must embrace it. Not fainting or giving up, but realizing that it comes in love. Beloved, as horrific struggles come into our life, we must realize that this is our absolute identification as children of God. Does that mean that every difficult thing that comes into our life, every trial, every challenge is God's discipline? No, it does not. But what it does mean is every time those major trials come into our life, God calls us to consider where we are with him. Are there areas in our life that need corrected? Is there something particular going on that I need to get a hold of right now? Whether or not this is his discipline, we do not know. But we always ought to be asking the question, how can I grow? How can I be more obedient? How can I not deserve this discipline? How can I move to obedience? For Horatio Spafford, his struggles were not over. 
He and his wife had three more children. Their oldest child, a son, died at three years old of scarlet fever. The Spaffords Presbyterian Church regarded their tragedy as divine punishment, and they were outcast. The church's actions were horribly wrong. But to a point, their assessment, although inappropriately, inappropriately administered, was correct. The Staffords went on to form a Messianic Jewish sect in Jerusalem. They did that during the days of the Turkish Ottoman Empire, one of the most wicked and dangerous times for Christians in that land of Palestine. They later joined Jewish Christians who spread their faith amidst much persecution and formed protective communes throughout Israel called kibbutzes and all over Jerusalem. Well, discipline struggle is evident from our verses. And for many, it's well known in their lives as well. We understand what this looks like. So let's move on to our third point to see the rest of the story in discipline's structure. Discipline's strength is where we began. Discipline's struggle and now discipline's structure. Verse 7 begins, It is for discipline that you endure. This statement is noting that the believer is made to persevere through discipline. By discipline, we are strengthened. How does that happen? Consider two children. One of them, biblically disciplined through his life. One of them, given literally no discipline. 15 to 20 years down the road, what do you have? You have one child that is a hellion. It has grown into a man that does whatever he wants. You have another child who understands and respects those who are in authority. So discipline is meant to strengthen and it's meant to make us endure. Life is going to be hard and there's going to be more. We can be certain of it. It's exactly what we saw in those ascending four levels of the hall of faith in chapter 11. All the way to the finality of our lives in death. It's going to be hard. But through discipline, we are strengthened to endure because God has made it so. And through his love and through our obedience and our acceptance, God deals with us as sons. God deals with you as sons. This is a restating of verse 6, but it is an indication of his love. And his acceptance of us. The rest of the verse emphasizes the same point. It is, verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now the parallel is taken from our heavenly father to our earthly father. And the insinuation is that your earthly father truly loves you. And if he does, he will discipline you. Now, that's a notion that may not be all that popular in 21st century America or 21st century anywhere in our world, for that matter. There are places like the state of Oregon where if you are disciplining your child physically in public, the authorities are empowered to take the child or children away from you. Seems like we've got a little bit of a, a problem with God's word there. What does Scripture say? 
Where do we always have to go? Back to the book. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Those who would withhold discipline from their children, Scripture tells us, are as if they hated their child. Proverbs 22 and 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. How much foolishness was in you as a child? Did that rod of discipline help? I know my father probably should have driven out a little more foolishness from me. I might appreciate that. However, I had a wonderful assistant principal, Mr. Pregitzer, who had a paddle about that long, and he stepped in to make sure he helped out. And he definitely drove a little out as well. Now, foolishness needs to be taken out because it is in every child. Proverbs 23, 13. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. I am sure that my dad thought, you know, that he was, do, that he was killing an animal the first time he spanked me. Because I remember screaming so loud, my throat hurt. I don't remember what it was over. I'm sure it was something I deserved much more than. But I still remember the first time I was spanked that after I was done bawling and screaming, my throat hurt. I kind of don't think that was in the same level of the discipline that was brought forward. I I didn't die. (laughs) Proverbs 23, 14, the next verse goes on. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Salvation itself rests in the focus of discipline. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. The critical natures of discipline are so evident. Is this the message that we're sharing with our children? Those who are raising their own children? Or are we concerned that we did it incorrectly? Beloved, that makes no matter. That makes no difference if you did it wrongly. If you need to seek forgiveness from your children for over-disciplining or for under-disciplining, then do so. But bring these truths to bear in their lives, whether it be for over or under. And in my experience, most of that apology would be for under-disciplining. But young fathers and mothers must know this truth. As a church, we must pass it along and talk about and support our young families in this difficult area. One of the most challenging things for young couples is interacting on disciplining their children and having a proper perspective and an agreement one with another about how and when and how much to discipline. And so... We fall by the world's wayside. We forget the lesson that we have heard. And we say, well, we really don't need to discipline. That child really doesn't need spanked. Hmm. Seems like the scripture might say otherwise. Verse 8 becomes the death knell ringing for those who despise and reject discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
This is exactly the opposite of what we've looked at in verses 5 to 7. If you are not disciplined, then you are not children nor sons, but are illegitimate, literally without father. All others have become partakers in discipline as sons. But those who have forgotten or who are seeking to remove themselves from the discipline are not sons of God. What an incredible consideration. Verse 9 initially continues the theme of the earthly fathers, but then it transitions again in the middle of the verse. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We have an absolute ton of material in these next three verses and a little less than a ton of time. So I'm going to shorten things up a bit here. But what we have already seen is this huge amount of application in these verses. Our need to recognize the point where we're ready to quit so that we don't grow weary and we don't lose heart, so that we are strengthened in Christ. How we need to realize that discipline is a part of God's raising of his children and that we have not struggled against sin as we should, as we must. Also that we are prone to forget and not just forget, but to keep forgetting. And that in order to remember What God is trying to teach us, we must be in God's word. We've seen that God's discipline comes by his love and that it's an indication that we are his children. And today you've each heard these truths and you've taken them in and thus learned. But it all comes back to that idea of learning. It all comes back to those two words for knowledge. Head knowledge and heart knowledge. Only you can determine this. Almost anyone can perceive these facts. They're straightforward, they're clear from God's word. But until you purpose to make them part of the fabric of your life, they have little value. As you have heard, will you make this your heart's truth? Will you recognize that God disciplines in love? Will you recognize that God has called us to obedience to his word? That he has called us to look to Christ to be strengthened and to continue to walk in his love. To realize that Jesus came as a baby. He came so that he could reveal to us the glories and beauties of his father. To live amongst us so that we might walk in the way that he did. To show us the path. And we now have all around us, we have all of the scripture, and above all, we have the glory of our Savior to look up to. Will we recognize and make this our experience? Will we see that we must move more from our sin, that we must strive more fully against the sin that is in us? Because only then will God be glorified. Only then will we rightly recognize, embrace, and endure the discipline that God has for each of us. Horatio Spafford recognized God's perfect plan amidst horrific trials, and God used him in an amazing way. God desires to use each of you 
and to have you grow in your understanding of his discipline and to grow in obedience. I pray that you, like him, will understand as well and that you will grow and that your obedience will be evident to everyone to whom you come in contact.